I came across Lee Miller in, I was in my early 20s. I used to work in the art world and I was doing an exhibition and we were looking at the drawings that Henry Moore made in the underground. My name is Julie Summers. I'm a historian and author. In amongst the drawings, there were some photographs that Lee had taken of Moore standing in the underground shelters. And I found myself more interested in Lee's photographs than I was in Henry Moore's drawings because I just felt that she she captured something of the extraordinary scenes there in the underground shelters. Hello, welcome back. This time on our Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain podcast, I'm really excited to introduce you to Julie Summers. She's recently written a book about Audrey Withers, who is editor of British Vogue, Brogue, whilst Lee, my grandmother, was there during the war. I grew up knowing that Audrey had been a key part to Lee's wartime career, but Julie's biography of Audrey's life, Dressed for War, was absolutely fascinating and the best biography I've read in recent years. Audrey had an extraordinary life which you probably wouldn't associate with somebody who was going to become an editor of the top fashion magazine. She grew up in the Lake District and for five years she and her older sister Monica were brought up by a nanny and her two parents, Percy and Mammy. Percy loved the hills and the fells around Derwent Water and he encouraged the girls to learn all about the environment and she was really a child of the forest in a way that she never really forgot. And the biggest single influence on her early life was her father. He had great relationships with artists and writers, long correspondence with people like Paul Nash and uh, A.E. Houseman, the poet. And what was interesting was that right from the get-go, Percy continued to emphasise the importance of nature and the natural environment to his daughters, but also to introduce her to this extraordinary circle of friends which he had. And so Audrey grew up in a highly stimulating intellectual environment that led very comfortably to Oxford to read English, which she then switched to politics, uh, philosophy and economics, and then on to working in a bookshop in London. So, so how did she get the job at Vogue? In the end, she got bored of working in the bound Bibles section. So she decided to pursue her interest and try to go into publishing. Initially, she worked for the Times bookshop in the advertising department. And then in 1931, she was made redundant for the first and only time in her life. And it had a very bad effect on her because she had left Oxford absolutely determined never to have to rely on her family or indeed a married man to give her her stable life. And she was unemployed for six months and she spent the whole period desperately trying to find work. And on one occasion, after about five and a half months, she spotted an advertisement for a copywriter and she applied and she was rung up and told that she had an interview at number one Bond Street for a job as the most junior copywriter at a magazine called Vogue. Right at the bottom, her job was simply to write the captions and to ensure that the copy that was sent to the um, printers was correct. And she kept that job until 1935, when her immediate boss, who was the managing editor of Vogue, left, who sadly had developed cancer. Don't forget the staff was very small then, so the jump from copy editor up to managing editor was um, 
at once huge and yet the only step. And Audrey was put into that role of managing editor, which she held until 1939, when her editor, Betty Penrose, she went back to America, actually at the beginning of 1940, and Audrey took over as editor in name until the autumn of 1940, when she was appointed in her own right as the editor of British Vogue. So Audrey took over the reins at Brogue at a crucial time in the publication's history. With World War II having just started, it was facing many threats and challenges. When the war broke out, the offices of Vogue were in one new Bond Street on the top floor. And at the outbreak of the Blitz in September 1940, there was at first a real sense of panic because the top of the building had glass domes, so they were very much at risk from being bombed. So quite quickly, they realised that the best thing to do was to decamp to the cellar whenever there was an air raid warning. So they would scuttle down six flights of stairs with suitcases full of proofs and copy and typewriters. And you get a sense of tremendous camaraderie and also quite high stakes because not only had they got to put this magazine together in not ideal, very cramped circumstances, but then somebody had to brave the bombs and go out and deliver the copy and all the photographs and the layouts to Euston Station. And yet it came out looking remarkably professional, considering the fact it had been put together in a cellar. And Audrey liked that. She liked the fact that she, like other Londoners, were working in a cellar because she didn't want people to read Vogue and feel that it was a sort of rarefied magazine that had no uh, sense of the drama and the reality of the Blitz. But it was, I mean, it was a very tense atmosphere and, and Audrey Stanley wrote to Condé Nast, she was one of the features editors, and she wrote to Condé Nast in, at the end of 1940, um, after the sort of worst of the Blitz was over, you know, saying, I don't know how Audrey Withers has done it. She's a remarkable woman. She's kept her cool in amongst, you know, bombing and air raids and firebombs and, you know, tremendous drama. And she's kept us all together. And I think Audrey's spirit of quiet leadership and determination not to let a mere war get in her way rubbed off on, on the staff and sort of permeated the atmosphere of the bomb cellar, which must have been quite extraordinary and jolly chilly. But the bombs weren't the only problems that confronted Audrey, were they? I think the very first challenge for Audrey, as it was for many women who were working in the publishing industry, was what on earth were they doing working on magazines and newspapers when there was a war happening? And so she had to ask herself, you know, was this the right thing for her to be doing? Should she not be going off and offering herself for war work? Two reasons why she didn't. One was because female conscription did not come in until December 1941. So there was no need for her at her age to go off and do war work. Uh, but the other was that she realised very quickly that Vogue had an important role to play in the war. And that was to communicate not only their own message, but the government's message to women. This important role was lost on many at the time, including those in power. And the magazine had to struggle on the meagre wartime paper rations they were allocated. You had this very interesting situation where some people were disgruntled by the fact that there were what they saw as frivolous glamour magazines being published by the government on precious paper. And there was even a question in Parliament from a Labour MP who was incandescent with rage, it's fair to say, that this scurrilous and useless 
publication was being allowed to be published while there was such a shortage of paper. But Audrey never referred to that. She was uncowed by criticism because she really felt she had an extraordinarily important message to get over, both on behalf of women, but also to some extent on behalf of the government. They wanted to get over the message that women had a vital role to play in the Second World War. And the easiest way to do it was to do it through the pages of women's magazines, because it was well documented that women didn't read and didn't trust newspapers in the same way as they read and trusted the magazines that they read weekly and monthly. So how did it work? Did the government kind of call Audrey up and go, loads of women are getting their hair stuck in machinery and fatalities from this. Can you change the fashion, please, Audrey? Yes, more or less. That is exactly what happened. Slightly more formal, but there had been very um, public scalpings, awful incidents where women had got their hair caught in, in the machinery and, as you say, had, had lost chunks of flesh. And it was awful. And so the government approached Audrey and other magazine editors and asked them to run a series of pieces to encourage women to wear head coverings. That was the first brief. But Audrey went further because she was convinced that actually short hair was a much better fashion, especially given the shortage of hair product. And she featured an article in Vogue written by Leslie Blanche with beautiful photographs by Lee using the solarising technique showing four women with their hair cropped short and with an editorial saying that this was fashionable and clean living and it looked great. So she, she fulfilled the government's request, but on, a, on her own terms. What do we know about Lee and Audrey's working relationship when, when Lee was shooting fashion in Britain? What we know is that Lee was vitally important to Audrey as a fashion photographer from mid-1940 onwards, not only because she was there and Audrey was very short a photographer, she'd lost all her American photographers and Cecil Beaton, who was working for the Ministry of Information, was not always available, but also because she knew that Lee had a really good eye for detail and that she got what a quirky situation the war had produced for fashion. And Audrey knew that she could rely on Lee to take what she described as snapshots. Now that sounds pejorative, but she didn't mean that. What she meant was she didn't want classic studio shots. She wanted the kind of photographs that would reflect the time. And she knew that she could rely on Lee to do that. So was there like a discussion between the two and how they would show something in particular? Or did Audrey kind of say to Lee, look, can you do this shoot in the taxidermist shop, please? When it came to the fashion shoots, I think to some extent, Lee was in discussion with the studios who would talk to the fashion editor about how they wanted the shoots to be made. What I've never managed to get to the bottom of is how the taxidermy shoots came about and how they were executed, because they are a remarkable set. Have you got any examples of, of when they did brainstorm together, or is that kind of all shredded? There is a memo when Audrey describes to Edna Woolman Chase in the States how she had particularly asked Lee to go and photograph the bombed out London that was then to be reproduced in Vogue because she knew that Lee would be capable of taking wonderful photographs. So I think she and Lee had had a conversation together in Vogue House about what images she wanted Lee to take. And there's also quite detailed correspondence about Lee going and photographing Fetter Lane after the bombing of Fetter Lane in 19. 
1941 when the Patton building was destroyed. Now, she wasn't specifically telling Lee what to do because by that time, Lee had proven herself and Audrey wrote a memo to Edna to describe how Lee had scrambled up onto the building opposite with the help of the firefighters to get the best possible view of the flaming remains of Fetter Lane, even though the building she was standing on was on fire. And I really loved that memo because it's, it's absolutely vintage Audrey, totally excited by the thrill of what her photographer has done. But also there was that moment in that photo shoot when Audrey realised how brave Lee was. And the other thing which she mentions in more than one memo to Edna is Lee's ability to write. And years later, she said what was so unique about Lee was not only could she capture what she was seeing so brilliantly in photography, but then she could write. And she regards Lee's writings as being as important as her photography, which I think is a very interesting aspect of it. Of course, Lee wasn't the only photographer at Brogue. She had a competitive relationship with Vogue's very own Cecil Beaton. The relationship between Teen Lee and Cecil is, is fascinating because when she first turned up at Vogue, you know, Cecil reigned supreme. He'd been reinstated after his blip in 1938 when he'd produced a, an anti-Semitic jotting on a picture. So when um, Lee came tripping along to the studio in 1940, she was basically elbowed out by Beaton. And yet very quickly, Sylvia Redding, who was the head of the studio, and Harry Oxall, they knew that they had somebody exceptionally talented. I mean, Beaton was a very, very good photographer. There was no doubt about it. He was, he was exceptionally good. But what he didn't have, what Beaton lacked, was Lee's visceral gut feeling for life and Beaton was a showman he could get the pathos of a situation he was wonderful in his photographs of the RAF but it was an aesthetic beauty an acknowledgement of something remarkable and I certainly I think some of his best work is his war work but what Lee had I'm clenching my fist here she had that real gut grim absolutely rooted in your belly understanding of what she was witnessing and Audrey saw that. When we were reviewing our wartime fashion section in the archive we found that Lee and Beaton had shared the same shoot that had resulted in his you know famous fashion is indestructible picture which is you know, that model standing in the pile of, of rubble. Did, did Audrey write anything about how Lee had done it? I don't know the answer to that question I wish I did but I do know that it was a great surprise when I found the memo in New York in the winter of 2018 that showed that Audrey had not only commissioned the photograph from Beaton and presumably from Lee as well, but had been very specific that she wanted to show a smart model against the debris of bombed out London in order to show the American readers that Vogue was carrying on regardless. And I think the difference in those two shots between Lee's photograph which is so full of femininity and movement and humanity and Cecil Beaton's which is historical and upright and smart is is very telling of the difference between the two photographers. Audrey wrote she Lee Miller has borne the whole weight of our studio production through the most difficult period in Brogue's history 
And this was as early as 1941. It became one of the things that inspired the premise of our Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain book. How did this early quote come about? So in, in 1941, Vogue in America wanted to run a feature on the photographers that were working in Britain for British Vogue. And Audrey sent a whole series of photographs with short biographies. And to her absolute consternation and frankly fury, Lee Miller was left out. And she wrote in no uncertain terms of her frustration that Lee had been overlooked. And she made clear in this memo that Lee had borne the brunt of the majority of the studio work at this very difficult time for Brogue. And it was partly because Edna and the Americans were wedded to Beaton, but it was also partly, I think, underlying it all, the fact that Lee was a woman and that made Audrey so angry. This seems totally at odds with Audrey, I imagine, who seems to have presented herself professionally in a considered and well-mannered lady of society kind of way. She came across as a rather ascetic, very prematurely grey hair. Although she was only 18 months older than Lee, she looked a lot older. But in that woman was the spirit of her madly crazy, wonderful father, Percy Withers. And there was a wonderful moment in her life when she was given a painting by Paul Nash. And she was so excited to get this painting that she ran into the house and she jumped from the threshold of the drawing room door onto the sofa, which was about eight feet away, and just flung herself onto the sofa and cried with excitement. Now, that is not a stiff-lipped, upper-class woman. That is somebody who really gets life. And it was that bit of Audrey that she kept really very quiet, that, that was what chimed with Lee Miller. And I think that is what the essence of that relationship is, that they understood each other. Together, this working relationship produced some incredible results, but it was, of course, a team effort. I mean, some of the layouts in Vogue are just gorgeous, and they're mostly by Alex Kroll, but, like, how much input did, did Lee have into the layouts with him, kind of design-wise? It's very interesting talking about the design of Vogue here during the war years, because, interestingly, the photographers were not allowed a look-in. And I think this has surprised many people. But the reason I know that so categorically is because Audrey had a terrible spat with the designer Edward Molyneux, who wanted to decide what images were used in Brogue and how. And Audrey had to put him back in his place and say, no, that was absolutely editorial decision made in-house by Vogue. So Lee would have had no influence over how the spreads were done, but she and Kroll were close and they understood each other and Kroll had a very strong sense of Lee's images. And so I'm fairly certain that she would have been very happy with Kroll's layouts, which, as you say, are at times just quite extraordinarily beautiful. What do you think were the key elements of the success Audrey made of Brogue up until Lee went to Europe as a war correspondent? I think the success that Audrey brought to Vogue was her fierce determination to keep it independent of American Vogue. And I think her determination to make sure that the magazine was relevant for the times and was showing American Vogue how Britain was coping. And while she was agreeing to do more or less what the government wanted her to do in terms of propaganda, she was also promoting women's strength and women's abilities. 
and the notion that there was nothing a woman couldn't do. And so a lot of the features in the early years of the war are looking at women who were in positions of power within the war, within their own right, not just being the wives of powerful men. But when she featured a woman like that, she would take her life, her strengths, her fashion, and use it to portray the, the, the woman herself rather than the fact that she was an adjunct to another man. And the other thing was her ability to keep people interested in fashion, even though uh, fashion was really suffering quite badly from the impact of the Second World War. Do you think that Audrey was given the recognition she deserved for what she did at Vogue during the war uh, in her lifetime? I think if she was given any recognition at all that she was proud of, it was the fact that she was asked to work on the Britain Can Make It exhibition at the end of 1946, which was a sensational show at the Victoria and Albert Museum. And probably she would have seen that as an acknowledgement that as the editor of Vogue, she had something to say about the future of British design. But the fact that she got an OBE in 1954, that was more to do with her work on design than it was with her war work at Vogue. So I think, no, she wasn't singled out and recognised for her work at Vogue. But I also don't think she would have expected it. What happened to Lee and Audrey's relationship after the war? So after the war, Lee went on photographing. She went to Denmark and then she went off to Romania and she was she was slated to go to Russia. And Audrey was trying to negotiate a permit for her to go to Moscow, but that, that didn't happen. When did Audrey stop being Lee's editor? I think the last article that Lee wrote was... a about 1954. She'd written several articles for post-war Vogue. She'd written about Christmas time, she'd written about gardening, and there was a period when Lee was very interested in cookery, but Audrey had been in some very fierce behind-the-scenes negotiations to get Elizabeth David, who was a sort of upcoming star of cookery writing, to become Vogue's main contributor on cookery. And I think that moment, which was 55-56, probably marked a break. I think it must have smarted for Lee that Audrey, the woman she had worked so closely with throughout the war, had not championed her in her cooking and was also no longer Lee's editor, even though Lee was struggling to deliver work for Vogue at the time. Adding salt to Lee's wound would have been that Audrey was Elizabeth David's editor and Elizabeth lived not far from Lee in East Sussex. I know from the lecture that she gave at the ICA in 1992, I think, there had been some correspondence between them, but I don't think the friendship remained in the same way as it had during the war. And I, I do think, Amy, that was partly because it had been so intense. It was almost like an intellectual love affair between them. They had produced this extraordinary body of work, and I think that very powerful... 18 months of work, which has created this great creative explosion of beauty and pathos and humanity and rawness. I think that almost consumed them both and it had an impact on them both in two different ways. And when the sort of shock waves disappeared and dissipated, both women had a different way of dealing with it. Whilst Lee, undeterred, continued to pursue her work as a celebrity cook, Audrey remarried shortly after the war. 
Her relationship with her husband wasn't straightforward, and upsettingly, Audrey found herself locked away from society in strange circumstances. I was absolutely horrified, and I got a huge lump in my throat when I read in your book about how she was sent to an asylum by her second husband. Do you know, it was one of the most difficult paragraphs I've ever had to write, and I did I did weep tears writing it, because for somebody who'd been absolutely at the pinnacle and then had gone on and, and shown that she had you know, tremendous intellectual ability and was such a strong person in her own right, but who'd suffered from this terrible problem with her back and not to be believed that the pain was physical rather than psychological by not only her husband, but also her beloved sister, Monica. That was really difficult. And what a what a terrible thing for somebody of Audrey's strength and um, abilities to end up basically being confined to a hospital ward because of her so-called mental instability. It's unclear how long Audrey was institutionalised, but it could have been a period of months or even a year. However, the marriage continued after she left the ward. She married Victor in 1954 and she, he died in 1980 and she, she had a very happy life with him. She loved the whole way that he, he, sort of, he was dominant and he, he rushed her off to Russia. They went travelling all over the world. But I always had a sense that she was never 100% Audrey and while she was married to him because he wanted her all for himself. And I think one of the reasons why she never took on another job after she left Vogue in 1960 was because he wanted her to himself. And he said so. It's on, on the record that he wanted her because they'd missed out on 13 years of happiness. And I have a sense that in the end, after he died, she really relished the last 20 years of her life when she could just be herself. And she went off and got her, her wonderful volunteer role with the um, SDLP as their um, volunteer membership manager. And she just, she just relished being in an office environment, being involved in gossip and fun and laughter. And you just get a sense that, that there's the old Audrey who'd, who'd been there all along. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Lee Miller Fashion in Wartime Britain. The book of the same name is available at all good bookshops and on the Lee Miller Archives and the Farley's House and Gallery website. Thank you so much to Julie Summers for joining us for this episode. Before she left, I managed to ask her a couple of questions about British wartime fashion. One of which was what was her favourite standout image by Lee Miller from this period? I, I love a, a, a lot of the strange work she did in the taxidermy uh, store. But the image that strikes me as one of the most interesting is the shot where the model has got her finger on a globe. And, and Audrey used it large in Vogue. And I love the fact that there's a woman in a very smart suit I'm not sure if it's Digby Morton or somebody else but she's got her finger on the world and there's a sort of subliminal message there that women can also control the world and I'm, I'm not sure that was the sense of what the fashion shoot was about but that's the message it gives to me and I, I love that photograph. Do you have an all-time kind of favourite British designer from during the war period as well? I am... Um... I've always liked Digby Morton, I have to say. I find his, his wartime clothing, particularly, I think he interpreted the um, utility 
and austerity designs in a very uh, sensitive way. And I, I, I love his, his designs and particularly his, his overcoats, I think, are, are hugely elegant. My all-time favourite of, and I, I love Lee's work, but the thing that jumps out to me are the first two paragraphs of the article she wrote about Germany in the Victory edition of Vogue in June 1945. It was the one that Audrey published. And there it is, and it appears with the scales of justice in Frankfurt in the photograph. And she starts this extraordinarily powerful piece of writing about Germany and about how Buchenwald would not be found in the Biedeker Guide. And every time I read that, I my hair, the hair on the back of my um, arm stands up because it's so powerful. It's such a strong, clear and angry piece of writing. And yet it's so beautifully phrased. Next episode, we look at the external influences on Lee's fashion photography in Britain during the war with senior curator at the Imperial War Museum, Hilary Roberts. This episode was presented by me, Amy Buhesen, who's the co-director of Farley's House and Gallery Limited, who runs the Lee Miller Archive. Our guest today was Julie Summers, and the series is produced by Tolly Robinson. The soundtrack is courtesy DeWolf Music, and the episode's copyright is copyright Lee Miller Archives, England 2021. The series is made possible from funding from the DCMS Culture Recovery Fund, which was awarded to us by Arts Council England.